All right, well, hey, good morning. Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers, and uh, happy graduation to all you graduates. Man, there are a ton of you. I tried to, to uh, try to keep it all straight, and I couldn't do it. I had to send out, like, multiple Facebook messages of congratulations. So I, I think I only left out Jennifer and then Aaron Capper, who's not officially here, so I don't count him. If I did happen to miss you, I'm sorry. Um, but congratulations anyway. I know this is an exciting time. We obviously have a lot of family here, and so that's great. So mothers, this is kind of like a double whammy for you. It's pretty awesome. Well, this morning we're continuing in our look at our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we've, we've come up to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, where we're thinking about what it means to submit to governing authorities. All right? How should a Christian, a follower of Christ, one of the people of God, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, view our relationship with earthly governments? This is is a question that we should ask. I mean, should we pursue some sort of utopian theocracy to try to bring heaven here on earth, the government's every decision being subject or a direct consequence of the law of God? Should we seek to fulfill all the offices of state with God? Christians, in order to get a Christian government to make it truly one nation under God? Or should we view them as separate? Right? That, that there's the sacred over here and the secular way over here, and basically we just need to bide our time while we're here. We kind of remove ourselves, withdraw from non-Christian society, just kind of wait in holy huddles and communes to... Till Christ comes back, you know, just kind of wait for the day and, and be of so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good? How should we view the separation of church and state? What's the relationship between the city of God and the city of man? Should we submit the church to governmental rule and have an official church? And when should we refuse? When should we disobey the government? These are the kinds of questions that we as Christians ought to think about when we think about our relationship as we live in this sinful society. Our relationship to the governing authorities can be a complex issue to wade through, right? And even more so today than ever before. I mean, think about it. We live in a day where unspeakable evils are committed on a regular basis, Our society functions thinking that it is more acceptable for a man to have a husband or for parents to commit infanticide than it is for someone to pray in Jesus' name in a school or even a chaplain in the military. Guys, I have a friend serving overseas right now as a chaplain in the military. He's dealing with this issue. He's getting in trouble because he prays in Jesus' name. That's his job. It's a complex subject to think about how we, as citizens of heaven, live in a corrupt and unbelieving world. How do we do it? Well, this is a big subject. I won't be able to look at it exhaustively, but I can tell you this. Jesus has some things to say about this. Jesus is going to help us to think about how we are to interact within our society, right? You see, God has placed authority structures in our lives, And in obedience to God, we are to pay them what they are owed. So please turn with me to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. It's page 848 in the Bibles there in the chairs. Okay, again, Mark 12, 13 through 17. Be encouraged if you read along with me. Not out loud, but to yourselves as I read. Okay, just want to be clear on that. Okay, all right. It says, And they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, 
Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, verse 17 is the main point of the text and the issue that we're trying to wrestle with. Okay, But before we can draw out the implications of this very familiar quote in Scripture, we need to examine carefully verses 13 through 15. Okay? Before we can think about rendering to Caesar or rendering to God, we first must submit ourselves to the truth. All right, this takes place um, on the same day as chapter 11, verses 20, verse 20, through the end of chapter 13. All right, this is Tuesday of the Passion Week. This is one big, long day that Mark is telling us about. And we saw, starting in chapter 11, verse 27, that Jesus was approached by these religious and political leaders of the day. They're approaching him to challenge his authority. They're here to question him, because they are the authorities, and they want to know what what he thinks he's doing, right? The Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council of Israel, sent an official delegation comprised of priests, scribes, and elders to challenge the authority of Jesus. They hoped that they can make a fool of him. Or better yet, that he would incriminate himself in the eyes of the Romans and it would get him killed, right? That's what their goal was to do. But in the process, they ended up looking both guilty and foolish. Jesus then followed up that first interaction with his parable of the tenants, which we looked at last week. And we said that that ended up being a prediction of God's judgment on these men, okay? That was round number one. This, today, is round number two, okay? The first group got beat, and they left with their tails between their legs, and now in verses 13 through 17, a second group is sent in, right? You can think of it in terms of like a battle, right, where there's multiple skirmishes that kind of come in, right? The the enemy sends first one platoon, and then another, and then another, and then another, all right? Jesus has beat up on that first group of priests, scribes, and elders, and now he's faced with the challenge of the second wave. Now, this group is comprised of Pharisees and Herodians, okay? The first group was identified by their roles and positions within society, okay? Priests were the temple officials who oversaw all areas of worship. The scribes were lawyers, judges, and teachers of all things concerning the law. And elders were the affluent businessmen who controlled commerce in that society, right? These people formed the Sanhedrin, formed this governing council. They were in government, right? And so they were the most powerful and elite of society. And like all wealthy and affluent people in all cultures and civilizations, they decided that they would take up a career in politics, right? We can understand that. They were identified by their roles in society. But now, in verses 13 through 17, we see these Pharisees, Herodians, and Sadducees, which we'll look at next week, they're identified by their beliefs, by the positions that they take, by their values, by their loyalties. You see, a priest, a scribe, or an elder could be either a Pharisee, a Herodian, or a Sadducee, depending upon the position that they took on certain issues, right? So the first wave, again, is identified by their function. The second wave, by their religious and spiritual positions. It might be helpful to think about it this way, right? That first group is identified like teachers and lawyers, right, and doctors, right, who could either be Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, or so on. Right? That's the position that they could take. Or they could be known by their denomination. Right? They're Catholic, they're Baptist, they're Methodist, whatever. Right? A teacher could be any one of those things. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? In seeing who these guys are? Okay. Pharisees are the watchdogs of the law. All right? They are very concerned about the purity of the people. They're very concerned about worship. They're very concerned about the governing of the people. I think all of that needs to be submitted to God's law, that they were to be a theocracy, right? One government under the rule and control of God. And so they kind of appointed themselves as the moral police. That's who they are. They're very religious, and they're very hostile to anything that even smacks of a foreign nation, especially Roman domination, okay? The Herodians were about as polar opposite as you could be and still be a Jew, okay? They were not 
very religious. In fact, they were quite licentious. Right? These folks are not known by what they believe spiritually, but how they align themselves. You see, to be Herodian means that you were in favor of Herod, the token king of Israel. Right? And to be loyal to Herod means that you have to be loyal to the current political structure as it is, which means that you have to be loyal to Rome. See, these are Roman loyalists. And the Pharisees, who are obviously Israelite loyalists, would have considered the Herodians to be traitors, that they sold out, that they were only concerned about making political alliances and advancing themselves, regardless of what that meant for their nation, regardless of what that meant for their people, regardless of what that meant for their worship, regardless of anything. They were sellouts. Okay? That's an unlikely duo, isn't it? Right? I mean, talk about extreme bipartisanship, right? That just doesn't happen. Right? And the Pharisees are going to be, they're mad that there are Herodians that, are in, that take up seats in the Sanhedrin because they basically bought their positions. Okay? These people don't go together. Right? They are as polar opposite as you can be. They're like Cubs and Cardinals fans coming together. Right? I mean, it's that bad. All right? and, and so this gives you an idea of just how big a threat they see Jesus to be. How big a threat he is to their authority. That these people who hate one another and do not want to deal with one another are actually coming together to go against Jesus. Now Mark tells us their purpose there in verse 13. It says they came to trap him in his talk. Right? Just like that first group, they were, concerned, they were not concerned about learning the truth. Right? They're not concerned about who Jesus is, what he's going to do. They're not sincerely pursuing him. No, they want to trap him. They want to catch him. This is not a sincere question. They're trying to catch Jesus in a lose-lose situation. Right? First, they try to butter him up, though. And that's where you get verse 14. It says, And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and that you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. This is flattery. Right? They are schmoozing. Okay? To use another word, right, Josh? Um, this is not sincere, right? They're, trying to incur they're not trying to encourage Jesus. They're not trying to follow Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe a thing that they say. No, they want to catch him in a trap. And they're trying to look good in the eyes of the people as they do it so that they can broadside him. But I do want to point out the fact that everything that they said about Jesus is absolutely true. And you notice that. Jesus is a trustworthy and accurate teacher. Jesus is right. Jesus doesn't care about anyone's opinion. Jesus is committed to the truth. He's not swayed by appearances or by what is comfortable or what is personally advantageous, but he truly teaches the way of God. All of this is completely spot on. They speak rightly about Jesus, but they don't believe a word of it. They don't care. You know, it's one thing to think rightly about Jesus. It's one thing to speak rightly about Jesus. It's another thing to actually believe Jesus. It's possible to say all the right things and even think all the right things and still be against Jesus. These guys were doing it. And how do you know that you are believing Jesus rightly. How is your belief confirmed? How is it verified? How is it proven? In your obedience. In your actions. In your response to that truth. It's in what you do and how you respond to that truth that you claim to hold or speak. It's like John says in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So you can say things that are true about Jesus all day long, but you can still be completely against Jesus. You can say that you believe something, but if your actions aren't consistent with what you profess, then you actually prove yourselves to be unbelievers, that you don't believe it. You only believe as much as you do. These men say all sorts of true things, but they don't believe a word of it. And it's proven by what they do next. 
So let's pick back up in verse 14 with their question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Again, Mark is clear. He's already told us from verse 13 that their intention behind this question is to trap Jesus in his talk. Now, the tax that they're referring to is a Roman poll tax. Okay, Once a year, all males who are under the authority of Rome were forced to pay a denarius, which is one day's wage. Okay, They had to do it. This was a sign and symbol of their subjugation and servitude to Rome. This designated that they were under Roman authority, that they were slaves to Rome. Remember, Israel is a vassal state to the Roman Empire. They were subject to the laws and demands of this foreign nation. And so this is an emotional, hot-button issue. I mean, think about this. If you're an Israelite, you're thinking to yourself, we are the nation of God. We are God's people. God has given us His law, and it tells us all sorts of things about how we are to govern ourselves, not be under some Roman authority. So how do we treat this? The one and only sovereign God of all is the one who raises up kingdoms and the one who tears them down. Right? And we see this throughout Scripture. I mean, just look at Daniel 4, for example. And you see that God has the authority to raise up nations and destroy them. And here they are as Jews. They're in their land, the promised land that God has given them. They have an established form of government. They have the temple. They have the worship. But they're still under the thumb of Rome. This is huge. Right? This was a source of rebellion throughout the region. It was only 30 years earlier that Judas of Galilee led a revolt against Rome over this very issue. Do we pay this tax or not? How do we, as God's people, submit ourselves to a sinful, ungodly, unholy nation? Do we pay this tax or should we refuse? Does paying this tax mean that we're trusting in princes or trusting in empires or trusting in political compromise rather than God? That's what's going on behind this question. And for many, it was a sincere one. It really was. But not for these Pharisees and Herodians. You see, the reason why they questioned Jesus was to get him to take a side on the issue. And if he took a side on the issue, then it's going to cause him trouble, right? Because if Jesus says to him, hey, don't pay the tax, don't pay it, right? Then that is going to be seen as as insurrection, as rebellion, right? That he's leading the Jews to liberate themselves from the oppression of Rome. And so the Herodians, which are, they're going to go and they're going to run to all their Roman buddies and they're going to get Jesus crucified as an insurrectionist. That's what they're going to do. But if Jesus answers, you know what, go ahead and pay the tax, go ahead and pay it, then he's going to lose his popularity with the crowd, right? And they're going to say, listen, he can't be the Christ. He can't be the Messiah. He can't be the one who's to deliver us from all foreign oppression, because if he did, he would never tell us to take the side of Rome over the Jews, right? He wouldn't do it. So this guy can't be the Christ. You need to leave him alone. He's going to lead you astray. You see, it's a lose-lose situation. right? Either Jesus answers the question and it causes him his popularity, it proves that he couldn't possibly be the Christ, or he loses his life in the process. You see, they are playing dirty. But Jesus knows the game they're playing. And he tells us, so Mark tells us in verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Jesus knows their insincerity and he calls them out on it. Right? And we see time and time again that Jesus is a perfect discerner of the heart. He knows what's going on. 
He knows who truly has faith and who doesn't. He knows who really wants to follow him and who is just saying to him what he wants to hear. He knows those who truly love him and those that are really just approaching him to get from him, to gain from their selfish desires. He knows those who are earnestly seeking truth and those who are trying to create their own. He knows those who are humble and contrite from those who are hypocrites. You see, you can put on the veneer of religiosity and piety, and you might be able to fool the masses, but you will never, ever, ever fool Christ. He's not going to buy it. Now, here's why I've laid all of this out, okay? We can see from the context that the people of Jesus' day, just like at all times, Right, have struggled with the balance between obeying God and submitting to governing authorities. This is not a new issue. We struggle it with it just like they did. Okay, but before you can even explore obedience and disobedience to the government, you first must be resigned to obeying the truth. Okay, before you can reconcile any issue, whether it be obedience to the government or marital conflict or the need to be forgiven or to forgive others, whether you're thinking about the decisions as far as relationships go and what to do with my life and how to just make your way in the world, none of that can really be resolved without first resolving this issue and submitting yourself to the truth. And I mean truly submitting yourself to the truth. It's not enough for you to be like these Pharisees and Herodians who say the right things or even think the right things about him. It's not enough to use him to pursue your own selfish motives. It's not enough for you to view yourself and the world hypocritically, that you hold to one standard for yourself and a different standard for everyone else, whether that be the government or the church or your friends or your family. You have to start here by submitting yourself to the truth of Jesus. Guys, we were created by God. If you're created by Him, that means that He owns you. Do you understand that? If you make it, you own it. It's a simple concept, right? God created us to enjoy Him, to have fellowship with Him, to bring Him glory. But the reality is, we didn't want that for ourselves. We wanted to reject his authority and establish ourselves as the authority. I want to live as if this is my world and I am God. Adam and Eve did it when they ate of the the fruit of the forbidden tree, right? But every one of us have done it. We all have that nature in ourselves. We say, you know what? I don't want God. I don't want your ways. I don't want your authority. I want to be the authority. I want to control my life. I want it to be about me. I'll fit you in when it's convenient, but if it's not, then you're gone. I'm the authority, right? We all do that. We have all gladly and willfully and longingly placed ourselves under the just wrath of God. God is the authority. He is good. He is holy. He is perfect. And God must punish sin. Because He's the authority. That's where it should end for all of us. But the reality is, Christ came. He took on flesh. He lived a perfect life. A life of complete and total submission to the authority of God. He obeyed God in every way, lived the life that you and I could never do. And he gave up that life as a sacrifice by dying for the rebellion and the rejection and the hatred and the insurrection of all mankind. So that if you repent of your sin and you believe in Jesus, you truly submit yourselves to him as Lord and Savior of your life, then you can be reconciled to the ultimate authority of the universe and live with Him for eternity. We have to get that. Okay? You must turn away from pursuing your own way to follow after Jesus, regardless of how difficult or unpleasant the outcome might be. You must follow the truth rather than your own convenience or rather than your own advantage. Right? It's not enough 
for you to simply call yourself a Christian and say that you take that on yourself, if you are not submitted to the truth of Jesus Christ, then you can't truly reconcile any issue. Whether that be submission to the government and paying taxes or obeying God. It all starts with a willingness to submit to the truth. We can't wrestle with the issue of government before we wrestle with that. Are you submitted to the will of God? And it's only when you submit to the truth of God's word that you will be able to make sense of the tensions and the struggles of living in a fallen world. It's only then that you can reconcile them according to the will of God because you are earnestly seeking it and you desire to live by it. So that's point number one. We have to get that before we can get anything else. These hypocritical men, they didn't believe it. They didn't submit to the truth. Okay. Second... We're called by God to submit to governing authorities. Right? Though Jesus knows that these are hypocrites and they're only trying to trap him, unlike last time, he actually goes ahead and he answers their question. And I think the reason why Jesus does that is because other people are listening. And other people have this sincere question. And so he goes ahead and he answers it. He says there in verse 15, Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, the Jews thought that they had a monopoly on government. They thought, I've got the law. I understand the God of the universe and his true intention for government. We have the right way. You do not. Therefore, we should not be subject to you. Okay? That was their argument. They were to be a holy nation. They were to be one nation under God. And so how could they be a nation, uh, this holy nation of God, be controlled by ungodly pagan authorities? But even more so, this coin, this denarius in itself, is an idol. Right? It's got an image on it. It has an icon, an idol of the Caesar, Tiberius Augustus. Okay? On it was inscribed, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side was written, Pontifex Maximus, or high priest. So this coin declared that Tiberius was both the son of God and high priest. This is blasphemous. This is an image of a god, a pagan god. This is a portable idol that promotes pagan ideology so how could we pay this tax in good conscience right how could we hand this over which ironically or should i say hypocritically when jesus asked for a denarius they were the ones that provided it right so apparently even though they didn't think that it was right to pay taxes on it they were fine in using it for commerce so But again, the idea remains. How do we as the people of God live in a fallen world under the control of a sinful, idolatry-promoting government? Does this sound familiar? Are you guys seeing the relevance here? I hope you are, right? Though God had initially established Israel as a theocracy, right, as, as a nation under God's rule, his intention went far beyond establishing an earthly kingdom. Okay? With the coming of Christ, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God is revealing His true intention for government. Right? The kingdom of God is not a temporal, national, earthly kingdom like Israel had thought. Instead, it was an eschatological, universal, and spiritual kingdom. Jesus presents a theology of government and applies it to a new era of history that he is ushering in. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe the gospel. Governments are temporary, earthly, and fallen. But God's purposes are eternal. They far exceed what is happening in the here and now. And so don't put your hope in the establishment of an earthly kingdom. 
God's ultimate goal is not to create a theocracy. The Roman government did not have to be allied with the one true God in order for it to be a legitimate form of government. And so give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Now the reason why I say that Rome did not have to be subject to God in order to be a legitimate form of government is because government is a creation ordinance. It was and is a creation ordinance, meaning that God established it upon creation. Okay? The government of the earth was given to man upon creation. That's a part of human history. Government is there. Genesis 1. 26 through 28. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every little living thing that moves on the earth. And what you see after that is Adam names the animals as a sign of his authority and government over them. Okay? God gave mankind dominion over the earth to rule and to govern it. That dominion was tarnished but not removed when man sinned against God. This is the ultimate thing the ultimate affront to God and His authority in our sin, right? Because we've taken on ourselves the, the God-given authority, the authority that God has given us, and we've turned them around and used them against Him. And as you run through the course of redemptive history, you see Israel is established, but they were not the only ones who were allowed to rule over God's creation. In fact, most of the time, you saw them subject to other governments, Right? Egypt, Assyria, right, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and now you have the Roman Empire. In fact, most of Israel's history, they were under occupation, right? Very few years were they actually free as a theocracy, right? And in fact, time and time again, you see that the people of God are under this rule of unbelieving nations, and it proves that Israel was not the only nation that could rule because government, again, is a creation ordinance. Just like family, just like marriage, just like school, just like labor or business. So we don't have to just go to Christian businesses. It's okay, right? God's intention was not ultimately to create an earthly theocracy. Not a Jewish one and certainly not a Christian one. Okay? You, you get what I'm, I'm preaching here? Right? America, the beautiful, right? Anyway, moving on. <clears throat> Alright? But what God wants is to see His people reflecting His glory to unbelievers in all aspects of life, including government, as they live and work within fallen, sinful, unbelieving societies. Not just here, but throughout the course of history and throughout the world. Whether you like it or not, Government provides civil order, provides peace in some measure, however imperfect, of justice. All right? And we are to submit ourselves to it. It is, it is to serve as the governing authority, and authority by its very nature reflects the authority of God. All right? Romans 13 Verses 1 through 7 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Who would you have, um, who, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is a servant of God for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for conscience sake. 
For the same reason you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all who, that what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. The reason why we are to submit to governing authorities is because government's authority comes from God. God in His sovereignty has raised them up and established them. And God in His wisdom and in His perfect timing will tear them down. Seen this throughout the course of history. And because God has sovereignly placed these governments in authority, 1 Timothy 2, 1-3 says, First of all then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and for all those who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We are to pray for and submit to governing authorities because God has placed them there. God's intention is not for his people to establish a kingdom here on earth and try to depose ungodly authorities through war or through physical force. Instead, we are called to pray for them and win them over by doing good in our service to God as we are engaging and interacting within our society. It's no accident that you live in this time, in this place, under this government. God has placed you here the same way that he has placed that government over you. And so if it bears the name and the image of Caesar, give it to him. God is sovereign over the government. Okay, Sure it's sinful. Sure it's fallen. Sure its goal is more and more seems to remove itself from being a nation under God and to establish itself as God. But that doesn't surprise God. This is not shock him. Governments and nations have been doing the same thing since Genesis chapter 3. Right? To be Pharaoh meant that you claimed to be God. Right? Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself as God. And Caesar is doing the same thing. This is not a surprise to God. He's not twiddling his thumb worried about his authority and his sovereignty. Okay? He has placed them there. And we have to remember, too, that Mark is writing to people, he's writing to Gentiles who are under the persecution of Rome. Right? Rome is actually killing Christians at the time. And he's saying to submit. But God is still in control, and He is not calling us to retreat from the world, nor is He calling us to overthrow the government to create some sort of civil religion. That clearly didn't work for Israel. It's not going to work for us. That's not the goal. So, what do we do? How do we live in the midst of a sinful and immoral society? I've got six suggestions that I'm just going to pop right through. First, We are to obey the government because despite its faults, and they are many, right? Even non-Christian governments reflect something of God's authority, and he has placed them there. And so you are called to submit to them. Two, pay your taxes, right? Here's the thing, guys. Taxes benefit us with things like roads and schools and sewers and health care and so on, right? Okay, you benefit from paying taxes. And if you benefit from the government, which you do. So college guys, if you're thinking to yourself, man, not me, not me. Government's raking me under. I got to pay so much for school. Can you flush a toilet? Can you? Right. Do you have garbage piled up in your yard? 
No. Okay? Then you benefit. Well, some of you might have more garbage than others. Bad example. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You have the option to have that garbage removed from your yard by benefiting as you pay for that benefit through your taxes. So do it. You benefit from it. You drive on a road. That's a nice thing. You don't want to go off-roading it. Take you a long time to get back to Chicago or wherever you're going, right? So it's a good thing. Pay your taxes. Third, this is one of attitude, right? Do not be cynical, apathetic, or a separatist, okay? Instead, engage with the government and seek to improve and correct its faults through the democratic process. You don't need to get all caught up in this. This is not salvation. But you should participate, okay? People need to hear your opinion. You have this amazing thing, and it's called a vote. And it is your voice. And if you are really frustrated by the way things are, and you don't vote, shut your mouth. Seriously. But I'd rather you not shut your mouth. What I'd rather you to do is go vote. Right? Let your opinions be known. And if the government goes against that, if politicians and judges go against them, let them prove themselves to be unconstitutional. Four. Be examples of honesty, integrity, and righteousness in the community. Whether you think this or not, they see you. And they are making judgments as to whether or not you as a Christian are hypocritical. And let's face it, we're all sinners, so we are hypocritical. But we want to, as best as we can, remove that hypocrisy from our lives, and so be good citizens. Five, pray for governmental leaders, as Paul has so clearly commended us to do. And six, live as one who is in exile, not setting your hope on the government. I mean, Jesus said so clearly, my kingdom is not of this world. All right? Jesus was bringing his reign into the world, but until he comes again, we are called to labor under whatever government we find ourselves under. We as Christians are not dependent upon just governments. We understand ourselves to be exiles no matter whose rule we are under or what nation we live in. So if you live in Afghanistan, submit to the government, right? We have to use wisdom there, but this is what we're called to do. As Martin Luther put it, the church of the New Testament did not attempt to save itself uh, or its existence by making a concordant with Nero or Domitian or Decius in the great persecution, nor by stirring up a revolution against these tyrants or by making an alliance with the Persian Empire, but simply by confessing the truth of the gospel and building up a truly confessing church whose members were prepared to die for their faith. Wrestle with that one for a little bit. So, we are called to submit ourselves to the truth, and second, to governing authorities. We are to render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. But Jesus didn't stop there. Third, we are to submit to God. Now, Jesus could have ended right there with render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but he didn't. All right? He commanded to give to God what belongs to God. Verse 17, and Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled. All right? Caesar might claim to be God, but only God is God. Right? You can claim it all you want, but only God is God. You can give to the state what bears its image. It only becomes an object of worship if you let it. Right? And in fact, we can make anything into an object of worship. Right? So it shouldn't ultimately concern you. So give the denarius that bears the name and image of Caesar to him. But give what bears the name and image of of God to God. Well, what is that? What bears the image of God? We saw it in Genesis chapter 1. Man. Which means that you 
And I and everyone else on the planet belongs to God. And if God has given us, mankind, dominion over all things, then that means just by subject of them being subject to us, then all things bear the name and image of God, meaning that everything, all of it, belongs to Him. Not parts of all, but all of all. Everything in its totality belongs to God. That means you, every part of your life, every cent in your pocket, Every second of your time belongs to God. Everything. Now this means two things. One, the authority of earthly governments is limited. Right? It is limited. Sure, Adam was granted the authority in the garden, but he used it to rebel against God. And since that time... We have done that same thing. We've tried to use our authority. It's been abused on the earth. Kings, rulers, nations, powers have attempted to use their God-given authority to wage war against the very God that gave them their authority. We see that over and over and over again. And throughout Scripture, God has promised that He will judge those who abuse their God-given authority, whether they are the people of God or not. He will raise them up And He will destroy them. And because we live in a fallen world where rulers and authorities have abused their power to rebel against God, there is a time and a place for civil disobedience. Okay? The apostles chose to obey God rather than man when it came to spreading the word. You see that throughout the book of Acts. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right to stand in opposition to the Nazi party. Right? If the government tries to force something on you that is contrary to God's word, then you are to refuse. Now you do it humbly, you do it respectfully, you do it by pursuing diplomatic avenues that are available to you, but you refuse. And we should not be surprised when these conflicts happened. Christ promised that they would. He said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. And he's talking about structures of authority. So, yes, earthly authority is limited. But second, our duty to God is comprehensive. Right? Earthly authority has its limits, but not God's authority. You must give Him everything. Everything. As William Kuyper so eloquently put it, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! It belongs to Him. God created you, so you belong to Him. If you are a Christian, Christ has purchased you with His own blood. So you belong to Him twice. You owe God your very self. So obey Him and trust Him with your entire life. Okay? Now I should also say that because God's authority is comprehensive, that means that God's authority is transcultural and transnational. Okay? God's authority is not limited to a particular people, a particular time, and a particular place. Right? God is the God of the universe. He has authority over all, which means all people. It doesn't matter where you're from. Christianity is not a Western idea. Right? We heard that when we were in India, didn't we? Right? That's not true. Okay? God is God over the universe, which means... All things are subject to Him. Everything is. God is transcultural. God is transnational. Which also means that you need to be. Okay? Loving your neighbor means loving everyone. Regardless of their social standing, the amount of money they make, their likes, dislikes, their language, the color of their skin, their gender, their age, you name it. Right? If God is God over all, then we can't pick and choose who we submit ourselves to. 
and who we engage with. Okay? Now, everyone who heard Jesus responded by marveling. They were in awe. They were shocked. They were astonished. They praised Him for what happened. God's vision for government and obedience is more than a theocracy. It's more than a removed community. It is more than the separation of church and state. Christ came to change hearts, to change our very natures, to cause us to no longer rebel against God's intended authority structures, but to actually thrive within them. Right? And though we rejected God's good and perfect vision for this world through His Son, God has given us a vision for authority that is infinitely better than any earthly, physical, political philosophy that could ever provide. He is establishing His eternal kingdom through the reign of His Son, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so stand in awe of His authority and His power and give yourself in complete devotion to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Son of God, the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Because you owe Him that. Let's pray. Father, we praise You that You are the Almighty, that You are the sovereign God over all. God, forgive us for the ways that we have failed You, the ways that we have rejected and tried to spurn Your authority, to try to live for ourselves. And God, I pray that for us and for our hearts that we would submit ourselves to the good news of Jesus Christ. That we would see the foolishness and the flaws of trying to carve out our own empire, to carve out our own kingdom. When all the while you hold out something that is so far beyond what we can imagine. Such glory. Such rejoicing. That we can't even begin to comprehend it. And I pray that we would Give up our foolishness, our efforts at seeking our own authority, and submit to yours. And we know that as we do, you will give us wisdom in knowing how to navigate the tensions of living in a fallen world. God, I pray that we would make the most of our time and that you would be honored and exalted in all that we do because you are the sovereign God over all. Your authority, your power, your dominion is forever. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.